Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we have two of the biggest shows of the season for you, all on one program. My first guest is Carmen Bombach, the curator of Michelangelo, Divine Draftsman and Designer at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. The exhibition, which features 133 drawings, three sculptures, a painting, and a wood architectural model, all by Michelangelo, and contextualizing contemporary works by his teachers, peers, and pupils, is on view through February 12, 2018. The lavish and extensive exhibition catalog was published by the Met and is distributed by Yale University Press. It's terrific. You can get it from Amazon for $58. Bombach is a curator at the Met. Her previous exhibitions include a 2010 survey of Bronzino's drawings, a 2003 exhibition of Leonardo da Vinci's drawings, and a 2001 show that spotlighted the draftsmanship of Correggio and Parmigianino. On the second segment, Guggenheim Museum curator Alexandra Monroe joins me to discuss Art in China After 1989, Theater of the World. The show's on view at the Goog through January 7th, 2018. But first, Carmen Bombach, after a break. This fall, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Radical Women, Latin American Art 1960-1985, including more than 280 works created by 120 artists and collectives from 15 different countries, the exhibition highlights the contributions of Latin American, Latina, and Chicana women to contemporary art. Radical Women is part of Pacific Standard Time LALA, an initiative of the Getty with arts institutions across Southern California exploring Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. Radical Women, Latin American Art, 1960-1985, on view September 15th to December 31st at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, presenting Cindy Sherman, Imitation of Life through December 31st. Organized by the Broad in Los Angeles, this expansive survey of over 100 works makes its only appearance outside L.A. at the WEX. From Sherman's iconic untitled film stills through her most recent series of aging divas from the silent film era, Imitation of Life highlights the artist's engagement with cinema and celebrity and her career-long investigation of the influence of mass media on identity and ideas about women. The exhibition is accompanied by a star-studded audio guide featuring the voices of Miranda July, John Waters, Molly Ringwald, and more. And it closes a calendar year in which every artist featured in the Wex galleries is a woman. For more information about the Wexner Center's programming, go to wexarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents The Glamour and Romance of Oscar de la Renta, an exhibition celebrating the illustrious life and career of the renowned fashion designer. Nearly 70 ensembles sourced from de la Renta's corporate and personal archives, the archives of French label Pierre Balmain, private lenders, and the collection of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston are featured. On view through January 28th. Visit mfah.org slash de la renta for more. And we're back. Carmen Bombach, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Tyler. In the beginning of the catalog, you say that the book, and of course the show, aims to draw us closer to Michelangelo by viewing his work not just in the context of its making, but in considering how his contemporaries saw his work. How do you do that in the show, and, and how do you explore that in, in, in the catalog? 
So the show has a storyline that is very focused on Michelangelo and also his influences, Michelangelo's training in the workshop of Domenico Ghirlandaio and some of the Michelangelo's inspiration in antique sculptures. And so a variety of works by the artists that are around Michelangelo are on exhibition to show also that these were very accomplished artists in their own right. And I think that with uh, particular comparisons, focused comparisons of drawings to other drawings or sculptures to other sculptures, one gets a sense of uh, very specific points of influence. So maybe it's obvious and maybe it's not. And in case it's not, I thought I should ask you to quickly explain what purpose drawings served a Renaissance painter or sculptor. So drawings serve the artist in preparing the studies for a painting, for a sculpture, for the design of a building. But drawing, in the case of Michelangelo, was a language for him. And so he often uses drawings rather than writing on paper any of his ideas. And Michelangelo also prepares drawings to demonstrate ideas to his patrons. And so those drawings are very clear and detailed. And Michelangelo makes presents of very beautifully finished drawings to his beloveds and to his friends. And those drawings are works of art in and of themselves. So there is a variety of ways in which Michelangelo relies on drawings also to just plainly train the hand, exercise the hand. So you sometimes find him doodling on the sheet of paper. And he often, as he very much relies on the human body as part of his artistic vocabulary, he very often draws from living models. And those drawings are really very powerful. The stories behind and related to some of those gifts are, are sprinkled throughout the catalog. They're terrific. We'll get to some of them here in a little bit. Are there similarities in technique between how Michelangelo made drawings and how he sculpted? I mean, are there things that he did with the pencil on paper, say, that remind you of how he worked with stone? Yes, there are both the very sort of uh, larger aspects and there are the more detailed sort of smaller points. In the case of the smaller points, for example, when he applies the pen and ink on paper or often the chalk on paper, he applies it in strokes that are parallel or in cross strokes. And interestingly, in the unfinished marble sculptures, you very often see that before he, in fact, goes to polish the surfaces, that he uses a tooth chisel that leaves grooves very much like the hatched lines on his drawings on paper. So in many ways, the treatment of the surface of the figures is similar in terms of cross-hatching and, say, also parallel hatching. The larger points in which the drawings and the sculptures uh, speak with a very sort of 
commonality of voice is the very strong emphasis on the contours of the figure. Say in the drawings, Michelangelo will search very lightly on the paper, do many outlines around the figure, but then he goes over the final outline of the figure in a way that he applies so much pressure of the hand on the chalk that it almost excavates on the paper, almost as if he were carving. Um, the way that he visualizes the figure, the human figure, in very abstract sketches, he's always seeing volume, so almost geometric volume that comprises the figure. So, And there is, of course, a great three-dimensionality to the figures when he draws. And also, very similarly as he does in marble sculptures, Michelangelo focuses on the torso, on the trunk of the body of a figure, and so often polishes that to a great refinement while leaving the rest of the figure or composition in a very impressionistic, sketchy way. And in a sense, you find that both in the marble sculptures and in the sketches, the drawings on paper. You wrote that Michelangelo, quote, considered function a determining element in his draftsmanship and that, quote, he was more than willing to sacrifice beauty when necessary, which is which I thought was a, was an interesting idea. Is there a good example of that in the book or in the show? There are actually a number of them. And what one would say is not so much that he's producing ugly drawings in those cases, but rather that he is using the chalk, for example, in a very bold way. That, for example, there is a study of a woman with many children that is in, it comes from Venice. And in that study in black chalk, Michelangelo is willing to define the hands of the woman almost claw-like, looks very bold, very deeply excavated lines, and he is willing to abbreviate parts of the figures in this very bold way that looks very emphatic and, of course, not very detailed. To some people, the fact that it is, the, those limbs may not be so detailed may strike them as ba basically bold or crude even, but they always make structural, artistic sense. There, there are a lot of reasons why it's amazing that a show of this many Michelangelo drawings and related work can happen. And I wanted to ask about two of those reasons. One of them is that Michelangelo routinely destroyed his drawings. You note that on at least four occasions, he burned drawings in large numbers. Why did he do that? There are a number of reasons. One, he was a very secretive artist. He was constantly worried that other artists might steal his ideas, his concepts of the figure, because particularly his very complex way of depicting poses for figures, he did not want to to be um, spied upon. And so in the letters to his father, letters to others, people who minded his household, he is very often speaking about the fact, don't let anybody see this or see that. And the destruction of the drawings occurs often when he is moving households 
from, say, Florence to Rome or Rome to Florence. And importantly, one suspects that it's the drawings that are sort of bolder, cruder, more sort of work-oriented that are the ones that he especially burns because, in a sense, as um, Vasari, his biographer, very poignantly says, so that no one can see the difficulties and the challenges that he underwent in order to create such extraordinary figures and compositions. So what he doesn't want the viewer to know about is the perspiration that is necessary, the the hard work that is necessary that sometimes requires drawing in a very utilitarian, very bold way. You also note in the catalog that at a time when an artist's fame could be significantly spread by the making and dissemination of prints, that Michelangelo was almost entirely uninterested in such. Is that related to his secrecy, or was he that way for another reason? I think that the reasons there are are more profound than simply that he may have been secretive about his work and working process. And that is that Michelangelo profoundly identifies with the work that his hand produces. So for him, the mind, the eye, and the hand of the artist are intimately connected. It's almost an extension of his of his mind. And so importantly, Michelangelo and his contemporaries appreciate the work that is by the artist's hand. And so you find the phrases frequently, di sua mano, his patrons won't work di sua mano, so a work by his hand. And for Michelangelo, the point of his disegno, so the term in Italian that denotes drawing and the creative idea in the sense of design, the point of his disegno is the fact that his drawing style is inimitable. And so a reproductive a engraving or a reproductive woodcut would never be able to recreate the fineness of his outlines, their modeling. And so there is this extraordinary cult of the hand of the artist in the work that he produces. And the same thing with his marble sculptures. Michelangelo identifies profoundly with the physicality of his hand carving the marble just as he identifies so closely with the hand that draws on the paper. As I think we probably all know, and as I think you mentioned a little earlier, Michelangelo gets his start as an artist in the studio of Domenico Gerlandio. While he's there, he he builds relationships with his peers, his young peers, men such as Francesco Granacci, who would become the foreman of Michelangelo's team for the frescoes at the Sistine Chapel. But of course, while Michelangelo's in in Domenico's studio, he learns how to do the thing, including how to make drawings. What, in, you know, in terms of his draftsmanship, what did Michelangelo learn from or take from Gerlandio and his time there? They're both the aspects of sort of the the particular techniques, say pen and ink drawing in which one uses hatching, cross hatching in a way to build up the shadows. And this is something that Gerlandaio is pioneering in Italy based on his study of, of German prints. 
And there are also the other aspects. Ghirlandaio was a very orderly designer of compositions for his paintings. So he produces drawings in very distinctive steps. He produces very quick sketches. He then produces often studies after a living model. He then produces very detailed, very synthetic drawings that are purely about in various light studies, by a compositional drawing by Ghirlandaio in which it's very cleanly, the out cleanly done outlines and modeling very precisely with wash. And this approach that's very orderly, that's very disciplined, was very innovative at the time that Ghirlandaio is practicing such techniques. And it is this disciplined approach to to disegno that Michelangelo absorbs in Ghirlandaio's studio and in many ways does not really abandon those practices. Other aspects, for example, Ghirlandaio uses models to study draperies. So he will use a mannequin or a wooden doll and put real draperies over that figure and then study it in a, in a drawing. And you find Michelangelo doing precisely that technique in one of the studies for the Sistine ceiling. So decades after his presence in Ghirlandaio's studio. So it is interesting to see how formative those years in Ghirlandaio's studio were for Michelangelo. So in the exhibition we have, for example, let me let me call out a Ghirlandaio drapery study. So in the ex in the exhibition we have two types of drapery studies by Domenico Ghirlandaio from Lille and from the Uffizi. So those are plate 16 and 17. And they're clearly studies of the draperies on mannequins. You can see the little clumps of the hands and the feet in the in Ghirlandaio studies. And then, although done in a different medium and technique, Michelangelo's study for the Eritrean Sibyl that is in the British Museum, so it's plate 52, has a, again, you can see the mannequin and very, very summarily drawn. And then the arrangement of the draperies are very beautifully articulated with cross hatching in the study of the draperies for the Eritrean Sibyl in the British Museum. So the practice behind that approach is one that he learns in Gerlandaya's workshop. Speaking of drapery, you, I think you, made an interesting discovery regarding Michelangelo drawing drapery and Donatello. Yes. In fact, it's a drawing that J. Paul Getty Museum has just acquired. And it's a, it's a drawing of a mourning figure and plate 26. And so importantly, the biographers uh, speak a great deal about Michelangelo's admiration for Donatello. Only we didn't have drawings by Michelangelo that very identifiably were based on sources in Donatello's sculpture. And so it was possible for me to identify the figure behind the 
mourner that Michelangelo draws in the Getty Museum drawing in pen and ink, the figure that is comes from Donatello's pulpit at San Lorenzo, which at the time was disassembled and on the floor of the Basilica. So that relief by Donatello was very accessible. But it's also interesting to see what Michelangelo does with the figure because one can hardly say this is a copy after Donatello. It's rather a very inspired rethinking of Donatello's model. Michelangelo gives it a three-dimensionality of almost a sculpture in the round, and so the draperies of the figure become monumentalized, and you have a sense of almost as if it were, again, carved out of marble, perhaps, because Michelangelo also uses some white gouache to give us the highest highlights, and so, in a sense, to give us almost a sense of polished marble. We'll definitely have an image of the Getty drawing on manpodcast.com. We'll do our best to get the Donatello. So when Michelangelo leaves Ghirlandaio's studio, over the first couple decades of the 1500s, Michelangelo moves back and forth between Rome and Florence a number of times. One of the major events of that period for him was his seeing the long-lost Lacoon and his sons in around 1506. Do we see the impact of Michelangelo's experience of that sculpture in in drawings, particularly in drawings in the show? We do. And in fact, the drawing in which this is most evident is in the study of the labors of Hercules from Windsor, from the Royal Collections. That is uh, plate 123, particularly in the labors of Hercules, a drawing in red chalk from Windsor, you see the figure of Hercules fighting the Hydra on the extreme right in the in the sheet. And it is very interesting because the figure of Hercules has that kind of heaviness of anatomy that we identify in the mature Lawakoan sculpture and then the the beautiful ways in which the hydra's many heads are intertwined into the pose again give us a sense of the great Hellenistic marble of the Lawakoan. But what is really interesting is that much earlier than this drawing, which is from the late 1520s, much earlier in the Sistine ceiling, Michelangelo is already at repurposing some of those poses for the figures of the Inudi or the athletic nude youth. And importantly, the Sistine ceiling, Michelangelo begins in 1508, so it's very soon after the discovery of the Lawakoan in 1506. And Michelangelo is actually called by Giuliano da Sangallo to go confirm the authenticity of the Lawakoan as the sculpture, the ancient Hellenistic sculpture described by Pliny. So Michelangelo's authority is is very important in that discovery of the sculpture, of this magnificent sculpture. And in in the art of this period, and particularly in the case of Michelangelo, there is seems to be a kind of before and after the discovery of the Lawakoan. 
the most famous thing Michelangelo ever does, and that almost any artist has ever done, is is his his monumental David from 1501, 1504, so a little before the period we've been discussing. Are there drawings that have survived related to, or that could possibly be related to that sculpture? Not really. There there are some studies after the model with the model posed as standing and nude. And so the observation of the anatomy in drawings that are done from the living model provide a kind of vocabulary for the anatomy. But interestingly, there's not a drawing that can be directly connected to to the David. The colossal David is very much about the study or the very particularized study of anatomy on the on the torso, the forcefulness of the expression on the face, the monumentality of the form. After all, size really matters here. And those are all aspects that are much more directly recreated in the final material, not to lose the spontaneity, than preparing it in a drawing on paper. Very likely he did do sketches, preliminary sketches, but there is nothing really on paper that can even begin to recreate that which he accomplishes in that enormous sculpture. At about the time that Michelangelo was making or working on David, he was commissioned to make a painting of the Battle of Cascina. Art historian after art historian has presented this as as a great engagement with or competition with Leonardo, who was commissioned to paint the Battle of Anghiari in the very same room and, of course, never finishes. Are there drawings in the show related to Michelangelo's part of the, the competition, as it were, and what do they show or suggest? There are a number of studies for the Battle of Cascina by Michelangelo in the show. And also, importantly, since we know that the cartoon or full-scale drawing for the Battle of Cascina by Michelangelo does not survive, the exhibition also presents a very famous painted copy by Bastiano da Sangallo of the central portion of the Battle of Cascina. So the episode of the bathers in this very beautiful panel painting that comes from the Earls of Leicester at Hockham Hall. And importantly, it helps us also refer to the figures in which we see studies on paper by Michelangelo, very famously the study of the torso of a male nude scene from the back from Vienna, from the Albertina collection. And importantly, as, as one looks at the life study by Michelangelo for the figure, in the original, one sees the extraordinary vigor of the line of the artist, of the shading and the art description of the musculature of the figure in black chalk with white gouache highlights. And so there is a tremendously powerful relief-like effect in the figure of the figure in the in the drawing. And then when one looks at the 
painted copy by Aristotle or Bastiano da Sangalos, and his nickname is Aristotle. Bastiano da Sangalo reproduces that figure about the midpoint in the in the painted copy, and one can see, however, how much that figure loses of the liveliness of Michelangelo's original, as we see in the in the study from Vienna. There's an extensive section in the catalog, and I presume the show, on Michelangelo's drawings related to architecture and, and decoration. We've been talking about the figurative drawings, but what do we learn, what might we learn about Michelangelo's approach to architecture and decoration from, from his drawings? What is really interesting is that in in many traditional exhibitions, and in fact most traditional exhibitions, Michelangelo's figural drawings are presented as sort of in a, in a bit of a vacuum, or exhibitions are dedicated to his architectural drawings. And what was really important for me was this integration of the figural drawings with his architectural drawings to see the elements in common and to articulate the fact that drawing for Michelangelo is really a language with certain very consistent aspects carrying over. I tend to think of Michelangelo and in fact call him the sculptor architect. There is never a sense in his architectural designs that does not engage in a very sculpted way the forms of the building elements and many times one can almost sense a muscular structure to the ways that he articulates the building parts. I'm thinking, for example, of the late drawings, architectural drawings for say the window designs for the Palazzo Farnese or the niches that he also designs on the Basilica of St. Peter or the drawings for the Porta Pia in Rome. And importantly there, you see Michelangelo, for example, using black chalk and then modeling very highly with washes and then also applying white gouache as highlights, for example, in the design for a window for the Palazzo Farnese Courtyard, a drawing that comes from the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford that has a luminosity and an actual drawing technique that is really extremely comparable to his late crucifixion drawings. So those beautiful series of Christ on the cross at center with the figures of saints on the sides. And importantly, these are also in this beautifully sfumato, beautifully impressionistic way done in black chalk with very soft modeling and application of the white gouache. And I would say that in this late period, Michelangelo in a sense, becomes a very spiritual person. And the spirituality is very obvious, of course, in the crucifixion drawings, but this spirituality also carries over into uh, his architectural drawings. So that Ashmolean drawing that I'm mentioning has a kind of transcendental quality to the forms um, that is really quite the parallel almost to those religious images that we are more familiar with. 
seeing as you brought up the the religious drawings, one of the most incredible is the drawing of the the Pieta at the Gardener in Boston. Maybe using that drawing as an example, could you explain why you think these religious drawings are so personally felt by, by Michelangelo? The drawing in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston was a drawing presented as a gift to Vittoria Colonna. So it is a very finished drawing. It it gives us, in a sense, the most jewel-like beauty of Michelangelo's diseño. So it is a gift that manifests everything that Michelangelo had to give of himself to a very beloved friend. And the the drawing we need to also remember is very cropped at the top. The sheet was cut off. And so to truly understand that drawing, we have to look at one of the contemporary copies that is in an engraving by a contemporary artist to Michelangelo, Giulio Bonassone. And so there we see that composition continues to the top. There is a triangular cross and we see the arms of the crosses on the side that would have had the crosses of the thieves, uh, the two thieves that are crucified next to God, next to Christ. And so importantly, the impact of the drawing is that much of that upper part of the composition helps us focus, draws the eye to converge on the head of the Virgin, and so brings dramatic attention back to the figure of the Virgin. And in the drawing itself, of course, the way in which Michelangelo very subtly models the figures, the shading is so precise, and it is so, at the same time, very, very gentle gives us a sense of an enormous amount of effort being dedicated to the actual craft of drawing the composition. And so, again, we come back to that wonderful theme of the artist's persona, the mind, the eye of the artist being intrinsically tied to the work by his hand in the concrete drawing. And so that spirituality, in a sense, is very much felt in these very late drawings and done so lovingly and so carefully. You mentioned that the drawing now at the Gardener was a gift to Vittoria Colonna. I want to ask about two people to whom Michelangelo gave drawings as gifts that are extensively chronicled in the catalog. One was Tommaso de Cavalieri. Who was he and how, how did he come to own so many Michelangelo drawings and do the drawings that Michelangelo chose to give him in particular tell us anything about him or them? Tommaso de Cavalieri was a very young noble man from a very distinguished Roman family. He was probably somewhere between 17 and and 20 years old when the 50-some Michelangelo meets him. And importantly, Michelangelo seems to have had a particular love for young, noble, beautiful men. He operates in a homosocial culture. He was, of course, gay. 
And importantly, in the case of Tommaso de Cavalieri, Michelangelo finds a very, very, not only physically beautiful young man, but also a very finely educated uh, young man who knew of the classics, who had had a humanistic education and becomes also a very distinguished collector of drawings and antiquities. Tommaso de Cavalieri remains Michelangelo's lifelong friend and is also at at Michelangelo's deathbed in 1564. So importantly, Tommaso receives these beautifully finished drawings, again, what we would consider the jewels of Michelangelo's diseño, the best that Michelangelo can give of himself to a person that he obviously really loved very deeply. And so, importantly, in these cases of the Disegni Finiti, it is not possible to leave out the kind of biographical context in which these drawings are created and also ultimately bestowed on the person that becomes the the owner of what it turns out to be, in the end, a very fantastic drawings collection. Michelangelo also provided drawings for, I think, four projects to Sebastiano del Piombo, the terrific Venetian painter who was among Michelangelo's closest professional colleagues and professional friends, I guess you could say. Why did he provide drawings to Sebastiano? One of the aspects of the collaboration of Michelangelo with Sebastiano del Piombo, collaborating, that is, Michelangelo gives Sebastiano drawings, is the rivalry that exists in the very, very competitive art market, the artistic arena of Rome. Raphael becomes the favorite of Pope Julius II and Leo X very quickly in Rome. And in many ways, Michelangelo feels the need to stay present in Rome while, of course, he is working in Florence as a marble sculptor consumed by the work on the facade for San Lorenzo. The only way that Michelangelo hoped to compete with Raphael's great fame as a painter, as a sort of divine painter that he's considered, is to collaborate with Sebastiano del Piombo, who is a very gifted painter in the Venetian tradition. So a tradition that is above all a kind of tribute to color, light, pictorial subtleties. And so all that extraordinary command of the craft of painting And Sebastiano, of course, looked to Michelangelo for a vocabulary of the figure that is powerful, imposing, monumental, very sculptural and three-dimensional. And Sebastiano, who one must say is a weak, relatively weak composer of compositions, of stories or historias, the Italians would call it, turns to Michelangelo for the invention of these compositions and the invention of the figures. So Michelangelo gives these very important figural drawings to Sebastiano, who transforms them into paintings that have great subtleties of color and light. So in a way, Sebastiano 
Cristiano is fulfilling a very important professional role in Michelangelo's friendship. What are divine heads and why did Michelangelo draw them? So the term divine heads or teste divine as Vasari, Michelangelo's most important biographer, calls them are associated with the gift drawings that Michelangelo makes for Gerardo Perini. So another of the aristocratic young men, this one Florentine that is around Michelangelo's circle. The teste divine refer both to the subject matter, which is they are heads of very fantastic headdresses. They have beautiful coiffures, like the beautiful so-called Zenobia drawing from the Uffizi that has pearls and whatnot on it. And so at the same time, the Teste Divine also referred to the fine craftsmanship, the fine manner of drawing the figures and with these very subtle, very finished manner of, of shading. And so they become these Teste Divine, which are the, the group of gift drawings for Gerardo Perini are a particular type of gift drawing that Michelangelo produces. Excellent. Carmen Bombach, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thanks so very much for giving me the opportunity to speak about a very beloved subject. Attend an international symposium on December 9th. Indigenous Knowledge and the Making of Colonial America, and learn how Indigenous peoples' knowledge of art, architecture, science, medicine, and governance shaped colonial Latin America. This event is related to two must-see PST LALA exhibitions, Golden Kingdoms, Luxury and Legacy in the Ancient Americas at the Getty Center, and Visual Voyages, Images of Latin American Nature from Columbus to Darwin at the Huntington Library Art Collections and Botanical Gardens. Learn more about this free event and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. Experience Tom Sachs' Tea Ceremony, a new perspective on the traditional ceremony combining the artist's longtime interests, branding, Americana, space travel, and everyday manufactured materials. On view now at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through January 7th. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents... The Medici's painter, Carlo Dolci and 17th Century Florence, the first American exhibition of Dolci's work. A favorite of the Medici court, Dolci was a celebrated and popular artist in his time, but his original and personal interpretation of sacred subjects fell out of favor in later centuries. The meticulously painted and emotionally charged works in the exhibition come from U.S. museums, private collections, and major European museums, and allow for an overdue reassessment of an old master painter. Carlo Dolci at the Nasher Museum at Duke University, on view through January 14th, 2018. Visit nasher.duke.edu for more. Welcome back. My next guest is Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum curator Alexandra Monroe. She's the co-curator of Art in China After 1989, Theater of the World. The exhibition, which presents work made in or about China by 71 artists and groups between 1989 and the 2008 Beijing Olympics, is at the Guggenheim in New York through January 7th next year. 
Monroe co-curated the exhibition with Philip Tenari and On Enroux. Monroe's previous exhibitions have included Gutai, Splendid Playground, from 2013, Li Ufan, Marking Infinity, The Third Mind, American Artists Contemplate Asia, 1860 to 1989, which was on view in 2009, and plenty of others. Alexandra Monroe, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much, Tyler. In February of 1989, two months before the Tiananmen Square protests, a major exhibition of then-recent Chinese art opened at the National Art Gallery in central Beijing. What did it reveal about China in 1989, and why was it the perfect place for you to start your show? The China avant-garde show, as it was known, or also known by its poster image of the no-U-turn traffic sign, was the culmination of a decade of Deng Xiaoping's open and reform era that had, as we well know, economic ramifications, a, a, a loosening of the central market economy, but most significantly for artists and thinkers, human rights lawyers, rock and roll stars and poets, including someone like Lu Xiaobo. The 1980s was a period of openness after 40 or more years of rather severe isolationism operating within China and its cultural sphere. Rauschenberg comes to China in 1985. Gilbert and George arrive. Art magazines are going back and forth. And artists like Shenzhen are moving to France. Artists like Saigotan are moving to Japan. Japanese writers and artists are coming to teach at the newly opened arts academies within China. So the China avant-garde show that was actually supposed to be presented in 1987, but because of a various political campaign was postponed to February 1989, was the culmination of this first decade of the self-conscious Chinese avant-garde, a movement that Gao Ming Lu dubbed the 85 New Wave. There were several hundred works in the exhibition from ink abstractions to performance to installation to abstract oil painting to figurative painting that was no longer in a style of academic realism or a propaganda image of figuration, but something else, including nudes. And significantly for us, it featured the work of a generation of artists who really emerge in our exhibition as the progenitors of a conceptualist art movement that is focused on installation, performance, video, and photography. So we're going to get to those media and, and some works in a moment, but but before we do, so you just described a, a Chinese artist community that was acting and transiting globally maybe before the rest of the Chinese economy was at a similar level. The posters outside the show that you referenced a moment ago are, are in Chinese, of, of course, but at the bottom they, there, there is an English phrase, China avant-garde. Why, why did they include an English phrase on the poster? We have to remember that the whole notion, the real kind of radical consciousness that happened with the 
open and reform era is the awareness of Chinese being part of a wider world. And artists saw themselves already by the early 80s as part of a global contemporary. 1989, we also choose for many reasons, but one of them, Tyler, is the opening in May of 1989, when one million people were gathered in Tiananmen Square in Paris, the Magicien de la Terre exhibition was opening, a show we all know curated by Jean-Hubert Martin that included 100 artists, 50 from Europe and America, and 50 from far-flung places, including Aboriginal art from Australia and three Chinese artists, Huang Yongping, Yang Jiechan, and Gu Dixin. And he announced that exhibition as global contemporary art. It was the first exhibition in the world to perceive itself and call itself global contemporary. And the inclusion of Chinese artists there on a par with Barbara Kruger or James Lee Byers was very significant. And those three Chinese artists, the work that they presented, which by the way is in our show, related work or the very work, saw itself already as on a par with the global contemporary. So it is not at all unusual that a poster of the Chinese avant-garde would have itself named in English. And that title was, in fact, the idea of Fei Dawei, who was a critic who was living in France in the 1980s and who saw the very famous exhibition at the Pompidou Center in 1985-86 of Japon des avant-gardes, a show that was put together by Japanese and French art historians that looked at the whole century of modernism in Japan, from architecture and design to the avant-garde. And he thought, well, that show happened in Paris. We, too, have our own avant-garde. And he sort of appropriated that (laughs) via Japan, via France, to Tiananmen, to, to the National Art Gallery in February of 1989. Are there one or two pieces in the 1989 show at the National Art Gallery that stands in particularly well for how artists were thinking kind of simultaneously nationally and globally in uh, in the late 80s. So the piece that opens our show was actually in the 89 show. And this is the very famous work by Huang Yongping that he actually created in 1987. The title of Huang Yongping's work is History of Chinese Art and a Concise History of Modern Painting in a Washing Machine for Two Minutes. And what he did is he took Herbert Reed's textbook on the history of Western painting and a very famous textbook on the history of Chinese painting, and as the title tells us, threw it in a washing machine for two minutes, and then takes that pulp and places it on a shard of glass on a tea box. And what is really happening here, Tyler, is the artist is taking the structures, the conventions, the art of East and West and pulverizing their structure, pulverizing their logic to make an indistinguishable mass that is itself a new work of art. And the question that that work, that installational sculpture asks us is, where do we go from here? But much more importantly, and the reason it's at the first object we see in our show, is it is introducing a kind of Dadaist action of destruction and a conceptualist action of questioning any given system of knowledge, of convention, of art, of culture, of meaning, and of language, and asking who are the perpetrators of this meaning? How is meaning constructed? 
it is a highly postmodernist stance. Postmodernism is the only modernism that these artists were ever going to know, and they came to it very naturally. Another work in the exhibition that is in our exhibition that was the exact work in both Magicien de la Terre and in the 89 show in Beijing is a work by Gudishin simply called 287 Pieces of Plastic, where he literally took plastic from his newly consumerist life in Beijing and blowtorch them into distorted, distended forms that look slightly bodily, that look like guts or could look like excrement. But this idea of installation art itself was completely foreign to the academic system of Chinese art. So he too is already seeing himself making a kind of art that had not existed in China before. So these shows open, the one, the one in, in Beijing before Tiananmen Square. What happens to the relationship between the nascent democracy movement, if you will, and artists after after April? Is there an alliance? Is there overlap? Absolutely, there is an alliance and an overlap. The Central Academy of Fine Arts, where many of these artists who were active in Beijing were studying or were teaching or were part of that community, was just a couple of blocks away from Tiananmen Square. And many of them, including a number in our show and including our co-curator, Ho Han Ru, who was studying art history at CAFA at that time, were in the square. Li Shanting, the key organizer of the 89 show was in the square. On June 3rd, 2nd or 3rd, the when the uh, styrofoam goddess of democracy that was several stories high was installed on Tiananmen Square, it was built by the sculpture students at the Central Academy of Fine Arts. The artists were there along with poets, along with human rights lawyers, along with rock stars like Tsui Jin. It was a community that saw itself as the conscience of a reform era China. They were not asking for a democracy to replace the communist state. They were asking for less corruption in the government. They were asking for a loosening of state media, and they were asking for greater individual human rights and greater freedom of expression. So there was a very strong alliance. You write that one of the impacts of the crackdown in 1989 was the emergence of a trend toward analytic conceptual art. Why do you think that's where where artists went? Well, most histories of this period actually present art directly after the Tiananmen and the crackdown and the kind of silencing that that happened in the two or three years directly after Tiananmen through two styles primarily of painting known as political pop and cynical realism. And those two styles of painting that were somewhat associated with the academy and were active actually all around China are very familiar to our listeners. They included pieces like Wang Jiangwei's Mao with Coca-Cola and kind of appropriating pop propagandistic kind of advertising super flat forms of representation in highly ironic positions, juxtaposing Chinese state with capitalism and consumerism. We take a very different tack and look at a group of artists who are really 
beginning to poke fun at the systems and the mechanisms of control of bureaucracy, of this newly heightened administrative control, centralized control that settles into everyday life in China around this time. And it's artists very similar to those in Soviet Russia, the Soviet Union in the 70s and early 80s, or even the 60s, artists who are appropriating the very mechanisms of bureaucracy and turning them into forms of art. So you have uh, a painting actually by Wang Jiangwei called Mao in the exhibition that was actually painted in 1988. And it is presenting the ubiquitous image of Mao Zedong that you see on the, the gate of heavenly peace. And that was in every factory, in every school, in every public latrine across China. And that work, putting Mao behind a printer's grid, is 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 like Wizard of Oz when she pulls the Dorothy pulls the curtain and sees that the Wizard of Oz is just going puff puff. It's showing the mechanism itself of the power structures that define everyday life. And there are many other works in the second section of the exhibition that are playing this same act of creating a space of criticality towards what Jeremy Barmay, the great sinologist, calls the very terror of language in the state itself. Westerners are familiar with the 1989 date not not you know as a major kind of global pivot not just because of what happened in china but because of what happens in europe too and and so while 1989 provides your show's instigating moment as soon as you get to 1992 you argue that what happens then particularly a trip deng xiaoping takes to promote the pearl river delta region is enormously more consequential for what contemporary china became for what China is now. Why? And then how does that manifest itself in what artists do? Well, 1992 would not have happened with 1989. The government was trying to regain its political legitimacy and realized that the ideological reform behind the open and reform era didn't turn out so well. But maybe the economic reform part of that original impulse would work. And Deng Xiaoping indeed goes down to the Pearl River Delta, which is a cluster of about uh, six or seven cities from Hong Kong to Guangzhou to Shenzhen, and basically allows a radical acceleration of economic reform and total encouragement of urban development, as well as an opening up of foreign investment, knowing full well that the overseas Chinese across Southeast Asia and in America and South America indeed primarily come from southern China and would be the first to line up with investment as indeed they were. So there was instant investment in this enormous accelerated spurt of growth that we saw primarily in the Pearl River Delta and that the rest of China followed. But that wouldn't have happened without another very important invention in 1989, which was the internet at CERN, which itself becomes the tool in a post-war world after the fall of the Berlin Wall, again in 1989, of globalization and of global finance. And so it is with the tools of global development, global finance, and what we know as the neoliberal world order that really goes into high effect here by the early 90s internationally that become the engine of this transformation in China around that period. And it's true that the three curators, we agree with the historians that what happened after that is 
extraordinarily consequential. And we're looking again in our show at what is the human impact of those changes. It's what Rem Koolhaas, whose project, the Pearl River Delta project, is in our show, what he calls the velocity of change. 1.3 billion lives are changed at a speed, at a rate, and at a scale unprecedented in recorded human history. These are the days when 17-story buildings were built in a week or two and 70-story buildings were built in a month or two. And when you had mass migration moving from the countryside to the cities and suburbs popping up overnight, ideologies being swept aside overnight, and as we see in one of my favorite works in the show, Shutan's Made in China, we see the evidence of a, a new newly bourgeois life in Guangzhou. So Shutan is a member of the Big Tail Elephant Working Group, collective of four artists active in Guangzhou from roughly 1993 to 1999. They later show with Ho Han Ru and Hans Ulrich Obrist in their landmark Cities of the Move exhibition in 1997 to 99. And Shutan makes for that show a work called Made in China, which is a bunch of Ikea furniture, including a bathtub, which was very unusual. No one had a bathtub before in China, but suddenly in the 1990s, you have bathtubs. You have you have television sets. And he takes these four pieces of furniture, a bathtub, a, a, a new a sofa, a double bed, unheard of, and a cheap car table, wraps them in gaudy mylar and litters them with crap that is made in what is now called the world's factory, Donald Duck stuffed animals, plastic Barbie dolls, uh, jigsaw puzzles, and also litters these tables with cheap camcorder video footage of what comes with capitalism, which is sex. So you've got Russian girls dancing in the new, newly opened karaoke bars in the seedy, uh, after dark streets of Guangzhou. So this is an installation made in China, that is completely illustrates this moment that we're talking about of China in the throes of globalization, the new consumerist culture, and how artists are making sense on a human level of these huge changes that are going on around them over which they have zero control. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great piece. We'll have an image on, on manpodcast.com. As we get into the mid-90s, you note that performance, particularly as, as now, really, before small groups and underground venues, was intensely ascendant. Is that because politics was pushing artists toward temporal events, or were artists responding to something else? It's in, inspired by a number of, of factors, and you're referring to the third section of our show called Acts of Sensation. And one of the key, two key figures in that movement that developed around performance art and video that is focused on the body was actually Ai Weiwei and Xu Bing, two artists who had been living and working in New York for most of the previous decade and who moved back to China in the early 90s. And the first thing they do is actually in Beijing, they publish three books called the Black Cover white cover and gray cover books that are published between 1993 and 97 that are a compilation of the projects that 
are created by this group of unaffiliated artists who are largely not associated with any of the academies, who by and large are living and working in a slum area in the eastern district of Beijing in what is now actually 798 and that Weiwei dubs the East Village. And in the first issue of the Black Cover book published in 1993 or four, Weiwei and Xu Bing interview Tetsin Xie. These artists did not know Tetsin Xie, and this interview introduces this community of, of, of artists, this burgeoning community of, of artists to performance art through one of their own. You know, Tetsin Xie being a Taiwanese-born artist who had jumped ship and gotten to America illegally and does this series of five one-year performances in downtown New York that only then, by the way, in the early 1990s, were entering the history books and only then being recognized as extraordinary works of endurance art and performance art and time-based medium, even in the critical discourses of New York, critical and, art, and, and artist establishment. So Tetsin Xie, along with Weiwei and along with Xu Bing, become a kind of impetus for understanding the importance of the performance. And my theory on this, after talking with these artists for 20 years, is the body becomes for them a kind of last bastion of autonomy. You know, you can kill me, you can brainwash me, you can tell me where to live and give me my, my hoko, my, my resident identification card that allows me to live within 12 square feet of where I was born. But I'm allowed to hurt myself. I'm allowed to put myself in an endurance position like Zhang Kuang sitting on the toilet for an hour baked in, coated with, with flies, or Malu Ming doing these nude performances, these kind of trans performances. The body becomes a bastion of not only identity, but of, of expression. You know, that raises the question, how informed by or aware of American feminist art practice were Chinese artists at this time? A feminist art practice? That's a really good question. Actually, I don't know. They were, I think, broadly very interested in critique of any kind. As I said, they postmodernism was the only modernism these artists were ever going to know. And by these artists, by the way, I'm meaning those artists who were also like Xu Bing and like Ai Weiwei living and working abroad outside of China. So they were very aware of critique as a space of freedom, criticality as a stance of art making. I'm sure they were aware of feminist critique, but I'm not aware of any works at that particular time that actually demonstrated that or incorporated that. But they were broadly appropriating and using in their own language this language of skepticism and the language of questioning power structures of any kind. There's an essay in the catalog that details how important institutional critique was as both a concept and something that would have naturally been of interest to artists in a state so thoroughly dominated by institutions. Yeah, the catalog's really good. People should buy the catalog. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Thank you very much for that plug. Uh, we're really <laughs> proud of our catalog, Tyler. Um, we think it is going to be something of a of a of a textbook, not only for the study of what we hate to call Chinese contemporary art, but more broadly for how to think about global art history, how to think about art that 
is embedded both with questions of identity as well as questions of how are you a global artist but coming from a specific position in the world. I'm always happy to point out that art museums don't just do shows and blockbusters, but that they create and share and disseminate knowledge in ways that are foundational. So in 2008, which is kind of the year of, of China's coming out party, the, the year the country hosts the Summer Olympics, which is well represented in your show. I mean, there, there are a couple of things about this moment that are really interesting. China goes international with the Summer Olympics. The Summer Olympics itself is an event that happens on the backs of typically uncompensated athlete labor. And then at the end of 2008, there's a massive global recession initiated by the United States, mostly. So in, 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 in the years between kind of the late 90s and early aughts that we've been discussing and now in 2008, Chinese artists became festivalist darlings, you know, on the, on the often isolated and often self-referential international biennial circuit. But this international engagement through the floating art world certainly prepared them to be ready to engage with the post-2008 moment. So how did they do that? Indeed, as you're saying, Tyler, our show culminates in 2008, and we use that date, the Olympics, as well as the global recession, and again, a whole geopolitical shift that ensues after that event. We use that date as a kind of end bracket to this periodization that we have come up with. And we have turned the sixth floor ramp of the Guggenheim Museum into a stadium. We have turned each of the six bays of Frank Lloyd Wright's sixth floor ramp into bleachers to reference, of course, the national stadium built by Herzog and de Moron with the help of Ai Weiwei that was, as you've said, the center stage for China announcing itself to the world as well as to its own people that it had arrived as a global superpower, if not a political superpower, most significantly an economic superpower. And importantly for us, as we conceived this section, the slogan for that Olympic year was one world, one dream. And what we have focused on in the last section of the show is a move towards collectivism and a move towards these utopian or often what they become dystopian projects, not made by any one single artist, but more works that are made through, by the way, the use of the internet that are looking to take art outside the now hollowed halls of the White Cube Gallery or the market, place, the, as you said, the biennial circuit or the art fair circuit or the, the newly established museums as they were popping up all over China. This was a move to take art back into the life of society itself and maybe even to make art a tool for change in social life, which, by the way, the Chinese have a special claim to having had a 20th century history that was composed of nothing but revolution, and having a foundational text like Mao Zedong's Yang'an talks that compel the artist to serve the people. And many of the collectives actively look at, like Liu Jie's Long March project that we opened this section with, he's actively looking at 
his own, the China's own history of modernism and China's own history of revolution and China's own history of that modern communist revolution to reconstruct a new relationship for the 21st century of the artist, art and society. And it's also what's going on in the West, the 2003 Venice Biennial. We see Hans Ulrich and Rickret and Molly Nesbitt staging the Utopia Station show with artists like Liam Gillick, making spaces very similar to the kind of social spaces that we are now building out at the Guggenheim Museum. 2008 is also marked, of course, by the Sichuan earthquake, that Weiwei's project documented in this exhibition. Using the internet, he recruits volunteers to document and investigate the names of over 5,000 school children who were killed in that earthquake in shoddily built schoolhouses that the government, especially in the immediate lead up to this fantastic nationalist moment of the Olympics, did not really want to admit to. It was also the year when Tibetan monks were putting themselves on fire in Lhasa as protest to the appropriation of Tibetan culture. And it's also very significantly the year that Lu Xiaobo in December uh, writes his famous constitution for which he is thrown in jail for the following 11 years. So 2008 for China is significant on a lot of levels and it seems to us to be a compelling year to end our, our narrative. Finally, you could have included the work of many Westerners who looked at China in this period, but you chose just one, Sarah Morris's 2008 video piece, Beijing. Why why one at all, and why that one? We had never wanted this exhibition to be exclusively Chinese-born artists. My co-curators, Phil Tanari and Ho Han Ru, who deserve enormous credit for the conceptualization and implementation of this very ambitious show. Our premise from the very beginning was to look at Chinese art in what we kept calling a global context. And doing that with an exclusive roster of Chinese artists never sat well with us. But in the end, any exhibition is defined by limited space. And the more artists from outside of China that we included meant the fewer artists whose work we really wanted to reintroduce were excluded. So we ended up landing on two artists. One is Rem Koolhaas, of course, whose project I referenced earlier, his Pearl River Delta project is represented in the show. And we worked very closely with OMA on the presentation of that. And the last one is, as you said, Sarah Morse's amazing film, Beijing, with Liam Gillick's incredible score. And it just fit. It just felt like it was the right move. It, it just felt right. It was in both cases, those were completely natural choices. Alexander Monroe, thanks so much for speaking with me. I thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.